Namaste, Mandela here. I'm very excited to collaborate with Explorer Maps, a small family business based in Missoula, Montana. Visit explorermaps.com to learn about how we are working together to connect people and place through art and storytelling. Welcome to The Trail Less Traveled, an adventure radio series and podcast dedicated to collecting stories and sounds from around the world in order to take you back to mankind's earliest form of entertainment, storytelling. This episode was recorded on location in collaboration with Explorer Maps. Missoula, Montana is a mecca for outdoor enthusiasts, and each week we will bring you tales of adventure from both near and far, as well as information and inspiration and a few tunes to set the mood. You can subscribe to the podcast and learn about our international outreach projects at traillesstraveled.net. And now, here's your host, international expedition guide, conservationist, and yogi, Mandela. Today, the trail has traveled is being recorded on the edge of a beautiful creek in the northwest. We're sitting in a cedar forest. There are thunder clouds above us. And I'm sitting here with an old cowboy who has agreed to let me interview him. And so first, I just wanted to say thank you so much for sitting with me today on The Trail Less Traveled. You're welcome. My first question for you is, where did you grow up and how was adventure a part of your childhood? The last 55 years I lived here in this Jaco Valley. And uh, we come from Lincoln, Montana. I was born in Lincoln, Montana. My dad was from Lincoln. My mother is from over the Continental Divide from there, the place called South Fork of the Dearborn, near Wolf Creek. And her mom was from a ranch at Bowman's Corners, 15 or 20 miles from there. My grandfather, he was born on the ranch up at the Dearborn. His dad was a brewmaster in Helena, Montana. And he'd come home. My grandfather was three months old. My great-grandmother said, here's your son right here. He hadn't seen him for three months. And him and his brothers lived up there on that ranch. And my dad's dad was from Great Falls, but he lived between Great Falls and Wolf Creek on a Gillette Ranch. He worked there from when he was nine years old. And he met my grandmother, my dad's mom, when he, they were putting in the highway over by Wolf Creek. They were running slips pulled by horses. The guy that was running the other slip was my grandmother's brother. And so they got acquainted, and they were from a ranch out there at Craig, below Wolf Creek there. And so they got married. They moved to Lincoln. Him and his partner, they had a sawmill in a place called Landers Fork. It's a river just almost looks like this. Anyway, my dad and my grandmother and his sisters, they stayed in a tent until he got his house built there. My dad's first years of his life. And as they grew up, 
they uh, were boarded out to school in Helena because there's no high schools. They had small 10, 12 kids from first grade to eighth grade in their school that they went to. Well, my dad went to Lincoln, so it was a little bigger school than my mom's school. And they boarded in, in Helena and went to high school, and that's where they met up, my mom and dad. And then my dad went to the Navy. When he got back, my mom and dad got married. My dad helped his dad with the sawmill. My dad did the logging. He had an Idaho jammer. Dad supplied the logs. And back in them days, it was big yellow pine. A guy named John Bacchus owned the land. They didn't have no written agreement, just a handshake. My grandfather was super honest. And so he paid him as he went along. John Bacchus's son was Max Bacchus. He was a senator. They were from Helena. And that's where I was born, in Lincoln. And it was kind of funny because my mom and my dad and all of us kids were born by the same doctor. We all had the same doctor. He must have been pretty old by the time I popped out. We lived there until uh, my dad and, and his dad got out of the sawmill business and my dad went to school in Missoula. Forestry school for about a year and or through the winter or something, he got meningitis, he got sick and dropped out of school and then he went to work for the sawmill there in Missoula, Delaney's sawmill. And then he got a job at the Horner Waldorf paper mill when they started in 1960. So five years after that, we moved here to Arlie, and we've been here since. Growing up, when I was six years old, I don't think I had any teeth in front. I asked my dad, could I get some money, Dad? And he said, you want some money? And I said, yeah. What do you want money for? I wanted to buy candy or something. He says, I remember it pretty vividly. My dad says, well, get a job. I remember, but I'm too little. I can't. He says, oh, no. He says, there's a lot of things you can do. So I started shoveling sidewalk and got a, like five cents or something. And, and then I got a job milking the cow for a dollar a week. The first year, I bought a pair of ski boots and poles used at the Mercantile in Missoula for $23. I saved up my, my milk and money. And I had a cousin that would take me skiing. That was big to me, that was huge, and I loved skiing. I looked like Popeye when I was a kid. You could see, count my ribs, and but my forearms were, were big because I milked all the time by hand. And then I bought a pony for $60. I never had a saddle. I put miles and miles on that pony. And when I was 14, well, on that pony, on a dead run, I could reach down and grab my cowboy hat off the ground, bareback. My brother, older brother, he started riding bulls. So the first bull riding I got into was Lincoln, Montana. 
an old guy here in Arley, everybody knows him, Jerry Matt. He was a team roper in his whole family. His little kids get out rope most adults. They usually walked away with a lot of money. He helped me pull down on my first bowl. I got second place. I won $60. They were range bowls at that time. I went to Deer Lodge the next weekend. That was Lincoln Rodeo, 4th of July Rodeo. They had a two-day rodeo. It was separate, and I won the first day. I won $108. And I didn't really know how to ride bulls, but I could ride, and I got by them. And, and so I thought you'd be crazy not to do this. Eight seconds, $60, and then 108 I thought I would, you know, like I was... I was hooked. Back in the 70s, that was, that was early 70s, like 71 or something like that. The people that were rodeoing in them days, they'd have old pickups, even sometimes stock racks, two-horse trailers. They camped around, and most of them were ranch people and, and country people like myself. It was a big time, and it was like a big family reunion. And every little town we'd go to, it was the biggest event of the year. It was so fun. You'd wake up in the morning in a, out in the infield of a, or wherever, and they'd have you come eat dinner, and they'd be cooking on fires and barbecues and whatever, old campers. Back in them days, it wasn't real fancy like now. We had a blast. We didn't make a lot of money, and I was a bum. I end up usually borrowing money to keep rodeoing, and I did it for 10 years until I met my wife and had my first daughter. And in the meantime, I rode colts for a living. And when I first seen my daughter, I thought, if something happens to me, how are we going to take care of her? Because we were poor. We didn't have much. And so I quit riding bulls. And then I just rode colts and started a lot of colts, and that's what I did for a living. I rode outside horses back in them days, but the horse market would dry up, and and then it would take off again. So you were busy sometimes, and sometimes you weren't. And then one time, the tribe had a small cell, and I, I bid it on it, and I got it, and I horse-logged it. My brother-in-law's brother had a Pertron. He got from a guy down here in Dixon. And so part of the deal was I trained the horse and I get to use him for free. So that's how I got started in the woods. So I worked in the woods and then I worked on the racetracks, loping horses in the spring, starting colds. And uh, Depending on the market, sometimes the logging market would go down and I'd ride colts and sometimes the horse price would drop and people didn't want to get their colts rode and I went back to the woods. I did that until uh, the late 90s and then I got a job at the state. In the meantime, I witnessed a lot of things and I realized that us people that always work to live off of only what we, we only got paid for what we got accomplished. 
we never were on a payroll. And so if we didn't get the logs in, we didn't get paid. If we didn't get the horses rode, we didn't get paid. But we were all pretty much scientists, even the ranchers, and the, which I worked on ranches along with this as well, that whatever works to keep them healthy, to keep your horse healthy, everything was all part of our life. And so we were like scientists on knowing what worked on our dirt for our hay, our crops, our gardens, which was always a garden in our life. And of course, we, with that milk that I milked the cow with, we lived off, we made our own butter. I didn't get along good in school. I didn't like school. They flunked me in the first grade, and I ended up being a... Back in them days, when you were painted a, a bad one, it carried on to each year. <laughs> and so I'd get up, I'd go milk the cow, come in, dump it in the strainer. I would go back out, I would clean up, and then I'd have to run across the field to catch the school bus. I hated school so bad, sometimes I would dream. I'd get up, I'd milk the cow, I strained it, I'd clean up, and then they'd say, Dude, you're going to be late. You got to get going. I'd have to get up and do it all over again twice in one morning. <laughs> I wasn't the studious student by no means. When I started riding, riding bulls and that sort of thing, my football coach, I got ate by a bull one time at Hamilton Fair and I was limping around, I couldn't play football, but I was too damn little anyway. I didn't really have no business in football. And it was my freshman year and my coach said, either you're gonna ride bulls or you're gonna play football, but it's not gonna be both. I said, all right. So I was out on the, pretty much on the sports because he was also the wrestling coach. He was my mechanical drawing teacher. He was my shop teacher. And I think there was one more thing, but I don't think I took that class. But anyway, in a small school, when you butt heads, it wasn't really uh, helped you out too good <laughs> in school. So that's how I got going on my horse career. And since then, I've learned a lot of things. And I've always been a horse trainer that I didn't cowboy my horses I took steps and trained them on the ground before I even got on them. Back in them days, I used to get ridiculed and called a puss for not earing them down, getting on and going, you know. Like that was the cowboy way is just get them saddled up and ear them down, get on and go. And uh, so I was one of the first that started training on the ground. I started different young guys uh, riding colts and brought them in that way. That's where I'm proud of my dad and my mom. My mom was an awesome cook. I uh, contribute my good health at my age for the way that my dad, he could have gave me money, but he got me going early health-wise and mentally, physically, I believe that he really helped me. And as well as my dad was 
also kind. He never, I never remember my dad ever hitting me once in my life. And maybe he should have, but uh, he never did. My mom tuned us up a little bit, not much, rarely. My grandfather, he always said, I said, how come, you, you know, you never beat us? And he says, well, if you have to beat a kid, they're smarter than you are. And uh, that's, how, that's what he said. <laughs> so I was like that with horses. I always give my horses a chance. I give them a cue. They didn't respond. And then there was pain. The second cue was either they're going to get their, their mouth pulled on or they're going to get, get kicked in the ribs or they're going to get slapped. But at the same time as that cue, I gather them back up, give them another chance, say like crossing this river here, straighten them out and I give them a chance, get their head straight and straight where I wanted to go, give them the go-ahead cue, they didn't go. Then, the, then I'd give them a moment and then this, the second cue, there'd be pain with it. <laughs> but the colts, they learn right away to take the cue. They're no different than us. If somebody give us a chance before they kick us, we're going to take that chance first. <laughs> That's how I train my horses. A little bit of love goes a long ways, and that's where I believe God wants us to be toward one another, is love one another and care for one another. And I love it when people are that way with me, and I realize that it's got to come out of me before I get it. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about your relationship with horses. I haven't dealt with them all my life because I had a break there in between logging and working at the highway and whatnot, different jobs. But when I was in my prime, my best physical shape of my life, that's when I was riding. So horses, to me, were a godly being that's been helping us people for a long time. I don't know how long, but it's been thousands of years. They're a beautiful being. They can help us a lot in all different ways. And so I respect them. I love them. And I love people that love horses. The horse lovers I know are, seem to be the most awesome people. I know they've helped a lot of people. So I always try to share what I know that will help people deal with horses. But horses are not for all people. Some people, they're gifted to do other things. Some of them, they use horses, but in a rough manner, which is what they do. I'm not running that down at all. But the horses still are part of their life as well. So I guess just to know how to take care of a horse, to know how to look at a horse and be able to figure out what's going on with them. They rarely have mental issues. Maybe if a bear chases them or they hit a electric fence or maybe they get displaced from their mates and they'll go into depressions and different things. There's a lot of ways to 
just like us people that they need a little love as well, care, love and care. Respect is a big word, which is really good for young children to learn the respect and learn how to deal with them without getting hurt, learn how to take care of them properly. And they're just like children. If you spoil them, they'll turn out no good. You have to be careful with that. When you ask, you don't over ask, but you you have to follow it through. You can never not follow it through and, and keep a, a trained horse. So you ask him for something, you better be prepared to take all day if you have to, to make that complete. So that's why it's good to be conscious what you're going to ask because they're only running off complete honesty. They don't know no bullshit. It's just what is the now. But they don't forget neither. They have a long-term memory a lot of people don't realize. And they're very smart. But I have so many stories on that, how smart they are. One time we were packing in a Bob Marshall and we were on Camp Creek. And we had an old horse called Rusty. It was a Appaloosa horse. He was a kind of a strawberry roan horse. And he would always fake an eye injury or whatever. If you didn't know the horse, you'd take him back to the barn and that's just what he knew how to do. Because what all they want to do is be free and out eating and taking it easy. They don't want to be packing or doing anything. So Rusty, he's tied up with one other horse and five mules. Well, let's see, there's six of them all together, or seven, eight of them all together on that rail. During the night, he was this very intelligent horse. He untied his knot. He went up to the haystack because we had to carry our hay in from Augusta or Benchmark. And uh, that was a bell on each side of the mule. We didn't have grazing rights in the Bob Marshall, so we had to carry our own hay up there. And so we had to ration it to him. And they were hungry. Rusty, he untied himself, and he went over, and he drug a bale of hay right in the middle of there while we were sleeping in the tents. My uncle told me we woke up to hear all them horses eating. It sounded like the whole herd got out and was at the stack, and there was snow out, and my uncle says, go out and see what's going on. It was cold, I hated getting up, you know. And I got up and I went out there and I shined my light and there's only one horse at that haystack, old Rusty, turned around and looked at me. And I looked over at the rack because I heard of all the rest of them eating and he, there was a bale of hay and it was right in the middle of that rack where they could all reach it. And normally, as you know, horses still kick and fight each other for the feed. But it was like Rusty made a deal that he'd drag them down one and they all had to share. It was, that's what it was to me because I'd never seen that before. It was always they'd, one would pick it all up and didn't care. But that was right in the middle and Rusty was the only one at the stack. So, and if you know, they know how to communicate between themselves. A lot of people don't realize how smart these horses are that's kind of the whole thing about why uh, when uh, Mandela here asked me to do this I, I'd like to, to share that with everybody 
to realize that how great a bean a horse bean is, as well as the rest of them, even cows, they know a lot more than people ever give them credit for. My son-in-law, his dad, he had a cow come wake him up here a few winters ago, bellering at the window. He got up and went out, and the cow took him down. The calf was stuck under the fence, and uh, it shows you, you know, they know what's going on. Anyway, it's all to be respected. They feed us, they clothe us, and they used to shelter us as well back in the old days. A lot of people that made their living off of their cattle and that, like my mom and them, they said they didn't get to eat beef though because it was all needed to pay the bills. They lived on deer and elk and whatever they could get, fish and but they lived really good and they ate really good. They were really healthy people. Other than that, there's so many stories I could go on for days. You're on the trail as traveled and today we're sitting in a cedar forest near a creek. It's raining, but we found a dry spot under the trees to sit and I'm sitting here with an old cowboy talking tales. But my next question for you is, can you share with us an experience that you had where you learned a lesson from that experience, one that you can share with the listener. I've made so many mistakes in my life that most all of them have a tell. And a lot of them, I'm not too proud to be shared. (laughs) 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 But they were all learning, learning experiences. When you make mistakes, your horse pays Maybe it might be your feed. you got to read your horse to see what, what kind of food. They're like us. Some of us people, we can eat garlic, and it's like medicine to us. And some can eat garlic, and it'll poison them. Horses have more blood types than human beings do. I never knew that, but that's what I was told. I'm not an educated person, but I was told by an educated person that a horse has more blood types than a human. So you have to read your horse. And the mistakes you make when you're training, you know, them are, they can cost you your horse. They can cost you a lot. So I, I have a lot of methods that I use that I've learned the hard way with. And most all of them have a story in particular, I, uh, I know one story that my brother was called to go work on a horse over in the Tri-Cities. My brother does a lot of balancing work, and uh, this horse could barely walk. His head was cocked over on its side, and it was kind of walking sideways, just barely shuffling its feet. He was pitiful. My brother went three sessions with him, reset him, released him and did what you do in chiropractic type work and releases. The horse straightened up. So a year later, I'm riding with my brother. He's my uh, mentor in working on them horses. We pull into that guy's driveway and we're across a 20 acre field at least. It's a pretty good sized field. We're coming down the driveway. We're looking at his barn and And that horse, he seen us, and he come running to the road. And I know he couldn't have smelled us because we were in the car. 
And he doesn't do that for nobody. When we got there, the owner said, that horse doesn't go to nobody. He's not a real friendly horse. And that was like pretty wild to see that horse recognize my brother when we pulled in there. Whether he sensed it or whatever horses and these animals do, they're pretty in tune that way. Like these elk and deer here, they could hear you from clear up on the ridge. They can smell you. They can even tell if you're hunting them. Because a lot of times when I'm not hunting, they'll just stand right there, you drive right by them. When you're out hunting them, the only thing you might see is their tail going over a far ridge, heading out. They're smart. This is what I learned living the way I live. I didn't really guide hunters very long because we only hunt when we needed it. And sometimes it wasn't hunting season, but we had to go get some. And sometimes the winters were tough. And all we had was macaroni and whatnot. So we needed to get good food for the kids. And so I confessed I did a little of that, but that's why I stopped guiding hunters because they could have bought two cows cut and wrapped, delivered to their house for the money they were giving us. And uh, I didn't feel right about it, but I had a lot of fun with them anyway. I'd bring them up and I'd build a fire and I'd toast their sandwiches and try to get them just to take a smell of the mountain air and look around, you know. And I got along good with them, and I, but I, I didn't stay long because I wasn't out to get them meat when they didn't need it. So I only lasted packing in a Bob Marshall for one year, and then I guided one other year. And I was 18 or 19 and, at that time, and it didn't settle good with me. I've never been a sport hunter, but I really believe in if somebody needs it, that it's okay. And that's what they're there for. Explore maps and the trail less traveled bring cartography to life through storytelling, conservation, culture, history, and art. The shared vision between Explore Maps and the trail less traveled feels incredibly natural and full of great synergy. This exciting new collaborative partnership opportunity quickly evolved as we discovered the deep family roots we mutually share in both Africa and Montana. We invite you to travel the world with us as we bring cartography to life through storytelling, conservation, culture, history, and art. As members of 1% for the Planet, Explorer Maps donates a percentage of proceeds from every product sold to a variety of nonprofit organizations around the world. All of these organizations have similar missions as we do, focused on the conservation of wildlife and wild places. To date, Explorer Maps has donated more than $150,000 to more than 40 different organizations since they began in 2012. Through this unique relationship between Explorer Maps and the trail less traveled, we will continue our commitment toward connecting people and place by raising awareness for the conservation of our public lands. You can get involved by supporting Explorer Maps, a small, family-owned business based in Missoula, Montana, with over 60 hand-drawn story maps. And be sure to use 
promo code MANDELA when visiting ExploreMaps.com. Today, the trail less traveled is being recorded on the edge of a creek in a cedar forest. It just rained. There's a fire burning in the forest not too far from here, but I don't smell smoke today. I just smell wet cedar and wild rose and life is good. Smells good today. Wish you could smell this radio show, but here we are telling stories. I'm sitting here in the forest with an old cowboy. We've been talking about growing up in Montana and learning from a young age how to work hard and milk cows and ride bulls and train horses. You approach training horses a different way, and I'd like to talk to you about the way that you go about training a horse. Each horse has its own personality. They're just like us. So you kind of have to be able to just know that and I don't know the words how you would describe it but it's just knowing the personality just know it as it is and dealing with it and the deficiencies that they may may have that could be throwing their hormones off is one of the things when you're first with a horse to find out what kind of deficiencies Like if they're an easy keeper, it's usually because of magnesium deficiency. Most of them have fat pockets where they shouldn't be. They eat bottom of the bucket out. They can't get enough food. A lot of them are magnesium deficient. And we fix that usually with kelp, wide-dried granulated kelp, and mix that with their feed. But as far as... When you first get with them and, find, and kind of see what's going on with them, you go from there. But I usually start off with a wild horse that's never been touched. I'll use the inner tube on a round corral so I don't have to dally around the post. And so when I rope that horse, it's just like a deer is trying to climb out and he's going crazy. So as he's choking down, I got the rope through the inner tube easy for me to release and as soon as that horse stops I throw that horse slack throw him some air you try not to get them where they fall over as soon as they'll stop just for an instant then you throw them the air when they go to fighting again they lose their air and as soon as they stop throw them the air and you have a long enough lariat you just keep going up that lariat you got it in your hand so you he can't get away with that inner tube because it binds and you can easily hold him with one hand and then you get up to his nose each time he tries to fight you stop he runs out of air you throw him the slack they'll learn really fast within no time at all they they figure it out not to fight because they don't want to lose their air and then I get up to him and I get my hand against their nose and they go to fight you just wait till they stop throw them there and then go to that nose and go to the nose every time that you ask him just to once you get up there and he stopped and he's just standing there and you got your hand on his nose then you stand back and you want his head to give toward you just just a shade just a minute amount 
And a lot of times they'll fight, but then they'll stop. And you go to the nose, and then you ask them again, and pretty soon you get them to turn their head just a little bit, and you throw them there, go to the nose. And you get them to turn their head a little bit more, throw them there, go to their nose. And within 20 minutes, they're following you with slacking a rope. Unless they're inbred or they're not very sharp, it'll take 30 minutes. So I start off with that, and it's a give-take method. From the day you start with that, as soon as they do whatever you ask, it's a comfort zone for them. And so you ask a little bit more each time. And then I'll usually use a nose bag. I'll restrain them, I'll curry them, and they can feel you. If you're scared of them, they're going to be scared of you. And so I won't even try to do nothing except let that horse know I'm not there to kill him. They're not a predator. They're the prey. That's bred into them. So you've got to get past that. But everything you do, it's always your way. So you never ask no more than what you know that you can do. So if you don't have time and you got, say, crossing this river, like I said before, you uh, make sure you got all day. If it takes all day, you, you're going to win that battle. There's no way around it. You can never lose a battle. You never ask them for more than what you have time to do. So as soon as they do whatever it is that you ask them, they're free again. They, they get to go. They, and then you just add more to it each day, each day, each day. And like I said, it's always a cue. You never jerk on them. You never put any pain to them. You give them that cue first. The second time, they don't respond to that cue. The second time, they're going to get, they're going to feel it. And then each time, it's always, always give them a chance without getting after them with whatever you're asking them. And that's how I do it. It takes a lot of time. You need to be out there. The best way is to go work them in the morning, turn them loose, go work them at noon, turn them loose, go work them in the evening. That's putting three days on them. You could work all day in the pen. But if you go stay overnight with them in the mountains, it's like putting three weeks on them, just one night with them, staying over 24 hours. I spend a lot of nighttime riding, ride through the mountains and come home, you know, late at night, one, two in the morning, so that it doesn't take you forever to get where you want to be with them. But it depends on how you, you go about doing it. But if they're out, if they got a, if their hips out, if their ribs out, if they're out in their skeletal part, or they're hurting, they might need to selenium deficient or something where they're hurting you need to find out how to fix them before you I trained a lot of them in pain before I knew these ways to balance them set the rib or wherever it needs set get them get them back if they're out anywhere in their body their first vertebrae in their neck off their skull is going to be out it's like us if we're out somewhere in our neck you can feel it right in our neck. They pop it in, pop a rib in. Our neck will fall in a lot of times without touching it. And horses are that way. So you'll watch them. If they don't want to turn their head one way, it's 
the other way is free, they can't turn it this way, then you know you got to pop that back in. So you find somebody that knows how or you learn, hopefully you learn how from whoever comes and does it for you. Because it can, that vertebrae can be out in four different directions. They can have a headache since they're a baby. That's the kind of horse that you can ride me, but don't touch my head. Don't bother my head. You know, they, them kind of horses. But you, you pump them back in, their head will drop six inches. You look at their eyebrows, their eyelashes, if they're sticking straight up, they got pain. You look in their face, if they got pain, then there's something, something wrong. You got to find out what that pain is. Because if, like you, if you're in pain, you don't want to play. You want to go sit on the couch. And so you got to fix that, fix that however you can. And a lot of times, because of the nutrition, you're not going to keep them in balance until you get that with them in their mouth. There's so many things. It's not hard. It's not complicated. You don't need to be a vet. You just need to find out what to do to get that fixed though when you, so that they're not in pain. Today, the trail has traveled is being recorded on the edge of a creek in a cedar forest. I was wondering if you could describe what you see to the listener. Could you help take the listener to the edge of the creek today? What do you see? Oh, I see a beautiful river, crystal clear. You can see the rocks on the bottom, the different colors of the rocks. And the trees are dug fir, cottonwood trees, cedar trees with uh, a lot of underbrush, like the different kinds of bushes real bright green and beautiful colors with real luscious grass along the edges different water grasses and stuff like that and the sky it's starting to break it's starting to open up a little bit and uh, the weather must be about 70 I'd say 70 to 75 degrees in my book it's like perfect temperature (laughs) So, yeah, that's what uh, I see, and it smells good. I'm sitting here on the edge of the creek with an old cowboy, and I want to say thank you so much for your time and energy joining me today on the Trail Less Traveled. You're welcome. Let's end your show with three bits of advice. Be sincere. Be a good acceptor and be a good giver. That would be three things that would be very useful. Namaste Missoula, Mandela here, your host of The Trail Less Traveled the community source for adventure and conservation information and inspiration. The show premieres every Sunday night at 6 Mountain Time, streaming live at trail1033.com. If you missed the premiere, you can find the Trail Less Traveled podcast everywhere podcasts are found. 
The Trail Less Traveled is a radio and podcast series dedicated to collecting stories and sounds from some of the most remote locations around the world in order to bring you, the listener, back to mankind's earliest form of entertainment, storytelling. We are incredibly excited to be collaborating with Explorer Maps, a small family business based in Missoula, Montana. Explorer Maps and the Trail Less Traveled are working together to bring cartography to life through storytelling, conservation, culture, history, and art. As members of 1% for the Planet, Explorer Maps donates a percentage of proceeds from every product sold to a variety of nonprofit organizations around the world. To date, Explorer Maps has donated more than $150,000 to more than 40 different organizations since they began in 2012. Through this unique relationship between Explorer Maps and the trail less traveled, we will continue our commitment toward connecting people and place by raising awareness for conservation of wildlife and wild places. You can get involved by supporting Explorer Maps. They have over 60 hand-drawn story maps. One month from now, they will be opening their world headquarters in Missoula, located on the corner of Inez and 3rd Street. And I hope to see you at the grand opening, because I'm currently in Africa, and I'm working on a project with Game Rangers International in Zambia, and I will be providing a free multimedia adventure presentation at the new Explorer Map store, on Saturday, November 18th at 7 p.m. If you've ever had a question for me regarding adventure, travel, or the past 20 years of recording The Trail Less Traveled, this would be a great opportunity to come and ask me a question in person. So set the date, Saturday, November 18th at 7 p.m. I will see you at the new Explorer Maps store. That's it for this week's adventure, my friends in Missoula and around the world. Until next week, please remember, conservation is not a spectator sport. Living in Missoula is a privilege, and with privilege comes responsibility. Please get informed and get engaged. Use your voice on behalf of wildlife and wild places. If you think you're too small to make a difference, you've never spent the night with a mosquito.